Now, one of the things that I am grateful for at Preston Road is just the amazing history of this congregation. I've talked about it before. You'll hear me talk about it again. And a particular part of that is all those who have served in, in this role, the preaching role, in the past. One of the things I heard when I was coming here about all the great preachers you've had before, which is both really great to hear and also kind of intimidating. But I have had the pleasure of talking with all of the living former preachers here or their spouses or even their grown children, all the way back to Eldred Stevens, talking to some of his grown kids about just what it was like to be a kid in this congregation and growing up in, in this neighborhood, what that's been like. And they, they just had so much wisdom to share with me. And I'm very, very thankful for all those who have, have served in this role before. Most of you know my most immediate predecessor, Wade Hodges. And Wade has been a great blessing to me. I talked to Wade while we were figuring out if we wanted to say yes to this opportunity. And then Wade and I have met in person a few times since then just to, to talk about ministry here at, at Preston Road and compare notes. And he's just been a great encouragement to me. And I'm thankful for the work that Wade and Heather and their family did during their decade plus here at Preston Road. One of the things I did was watch some of the sermons that you heard during his time and during the interim. And I will never forget watching Wade's final sermon because he just had some wonderful things to say about you. And he even had some things to say about me, although he didn't know me at the time, and you didn't know me, but he was talking about his, uh, his successor, whoever that would be. But he, he said a quote in that sermon, and you might remember it. I had not heard it put this way before. I know it wasn't original to Wade, but I'm so grateful that he said it, because I've never forgotten it. See if you remember this quote that he said. He said, expectations are premeditated resentments or disappointments. And I had not heard it put that way before, but that made so much sense to me when he said it. So many of my resentments or disappointments come because of my own expectations, and they're often unspoken. Like, I haven't told anybody I hold this expectation, but I have it, and then it doesn't happen, and I'm upset. I'm disappointed. I'm resentful about it. I think there are probably some common expectations that we have that are often unmet. See if some of these resonate with you. I worked really hard and did a good job and no one noticed or said anything. You thought that before? I followed all the rules and it doesn't feel like I'm getting ahead. I went above and beyond for other people, but they didn't reciprocate. I suspect you might have more. There are things that you, that you hold, these expectations, that often don't pan out and they lead us to moments of resentment or disappointment. Sometimes it's not so much resentment, it's just things didn't turn out the way we had hoped. Think of all the things that were so different during the height of COVID. Some of you had important moments that looked a lot different because we weren't gathering in the ways we were used to. You might have celebrated milestones, birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, and they were just 
let's be honest, they were disappointing. It didn't really feel much like a celebration. And we did our best. We drove by people's houses and waved at them and had you know, these kind of different form of celebrations. They just weren't the same. And they were disappointing. During this Christmas season, we love to be festive and dress up the Christmas story. And I'm glad we do. I love Christmas decorations. I love walking around this building. I love being in this neighborhood. Sometimes we forget that the Christmas story is based on what really was a disappointing event, if you looked at it at the time. It wasn't that great for Mary. It wasn't that great for Joseph. It wasn't that great that first Christmas. Jesus' birth was not really a nice event. Mary didn't have a beautiful baby shower with lots of amazing refreshments and wonderful gifts. The birth wasn't this nice, perfect moment with all these Instagrammable opportunities. It just wasn't like that. So I want to take us to Luke chapter 2 today in this series called God With Us. We're using the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God With Us, to talk about how God is with us in different moments of life. And how we can look at the birth story of Jesus and see that even then. So join me in Luke chapter 2. Luke writes this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Luke sets the stage again. He says that this was during the time of Augustus Caesar. You remember last week, it was in the time of Herod, an oppressive tyrant, king of the Jews. And now Luke is reminding us of the Roman ruler on the scene, Augustus Caesar. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar and came to power violently. And at some point, Julius Caesar began to be referred to as God. Well, if Augustus Caesar is his son, what do you think he began to be referred to? A son of God. There's some tension brewing here. And Augustus proclaimed that he brought peace and justice and that he was the savior of the world. Well, that claim will be challenged. So we've got a difficult, brutal Roman tyrant on the scene. Now, not as bad as some of the ones who will follow later. We'll, we can get into Nero another time. But he issues a, a decree for a census. And this is not just about neutral number counting. A census was a way to take inventory of who might be added to the tax rolls. It was a way for the government to extort more money from people. We know that, since, that uh, taking a census was viewed this way because in Acts, Luke tells us about a man named Judas the Galilean who ignites a rebellion because another census order is given. This isn't just a way to count numbers. It's a way to get more money from the people. This is the scene that's happening that brings Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. So we continue the story. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of the line of David. 
He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So here we have this time of upheaval, of power struggle. Here's this tiny little nondescript couple who has to travel a great distance because of an edict issued far, far away. And I wonder what it felt like for Joseph and Mary, as she is very pregnant, to make this journey and go back to Joseph's hometown. Some of you are planning holiday trips to go stay with extended family. And you may have mixed feelings about that. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because some of those extended family members might be in this room. But but it's not always an easy event to go and stay in a house full of people that you see only occasionally. Especially if, let's just be honest, you married into that family. Now, I want to be very clear. My in-laws often watch this service. We will be there after Christmas and I am looking forward to this, okay? Let's just put that, put that to rest right now. But I'm just imagining the journey that they might take. They have to go stay with Joseph's family a couple days away, travel in difficult circumstances. Might not be what they had pictured for the birth of this child. But here comes this ruling, and they're going to travel there and maybe have their child in a very different way than they might have been talking about. And so then, verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she, this is Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths. Okay, we're still good so far. This is a more or less normal story of a birth. Now, the traveling is different. But other than that, you you wrap a baby in, in strips of cloth at this time. That's what you do to ensure proper bone and muscle development. Standard practice. Pretty normal. Now, when John the Baptist is born, we get this great miracle where his father, who has been rendered mute, is able to speak. None of that here, especially in Luke's story. We like to run over to Matthew and grab a lot of those details. We'll let Matthew tell his own story his way. We're going to let Luke tell the story his way. Pretty normal birth so far. But the second half of verse 7 is where things turn. She placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now things take a turn. This is not a normal birth even in the first century. You may have these articles that come across your social feeds, these news articles. I see them most years that say, you know, Jesus, was, there was no inn, it was a guest room, and they give all these details. And I'm for accuracy. We're going to talk about accuracy, but not as a way to say, you've been wrong about Christmas your whole life. Look how dumb you are. I don't like that. We have our Christmas scenes, and I love them. And yes, we may have some details that have gotten lost through the centuries, but we're going to be okay. But, it, but I do think getting this part accurate makes a difference in this story. So, we have heard the phrase, no room at the inn. I-N-N. An inn in the first century was a roadside stop between two towns. Luke knows the word for inn. He uses it in the Good Samaritan story. The inn is where the Good Samaritan paid for the man who'd been beaten up to stay. It's temporary lodging often between two towns. Luke knows that word. He uses it there. He does not use it in this story. The 
place where there was no room is best translated guest house. Luke uses that word to talk about the upper room where Jesus and his disciples met to eat the Passover together. And that was a room and a house. So look at this picture of a typical first century home. So you see the the top floor is where the people would live. That's where they would sleep and eat. The bottom floor was for the animals. That's where they would keep the stable. That's where they would keep all the animals that they owned, sort of on the bottom floor. Here's where this makes a difference. So Joseph and his wife, they're going to his hometown. They're going to stay with relatives. That's how hospitality works. You don't, you don't people, put people up in a hotel. They might not even have one in the town. You're expected to stay with people. The roadside inn is where you stop along the way, on the highway. They're going to Joseph's hometown to stay with some form of his extended family. And they won't even make room for this pregnant woman. Somebody else could have said, I'll sleep downstairs with the animals. I'll stay down there. But they didn't. And I don't know what difficult family dynamics might have been happening with Joseph's family. There might have been some social stigma about Mary and their marriage status and how again did she come to have this baby and maybe a lot of gossip. I don't know. But even among his extended family, no one makes room for them. Can you imagine how disappointing and discouraging that must have been for Mary? What it was like to go back to this place and not have a comfortable place to be and to have a child? What would it have been like for her to endure all that social shame and not even have a moment of hospitality for the birth of her child? All this wonderful anticipation for a pretty lousy payoff. Here's teenage Mary relegated to the animal quarters to stay and to have her child. Think of the difference between her expectations and reality. What would that have been like? You know, my, my friend who preaches in Granbury named John Knox, he did a sermon series a few years ago, and I thought it was marvelous. I might steal it someday. And the series was just called I Hadn't Planned On. I Hadn't Planned On. Some of us in this room are going through things or have gone through things that we would say, you know, I just hadn't planned on it being that way. I had not planned on losing my job. I mean, I put in my time. I was a loyal employee. I had not planned on losing my job this way. You know, I hadn't planned on all this family conflict. I hadn't pl- as, my, as my kids have got older and they've become adults, we, I thought we were doing okay. And I just had not planned on all this drama and conflict happening. It's not what I imagined these years would be like. Now, I hadn't planned on this diagnosis. You know, my health isn't perfect, but I didn't see this one coming. And I, I don't know what to do with that. This is not what I expected at this point in life. You know, I hadn't planned on feeling left out among my friends. I, I was... I try to be nice to them, try to be inclusive. And I hadn't planned on feeling this left out in school or in life. I just hadn't planned on that. It wasn't on my radar. Most of us have experienced these things. 
and there's this gap, right? The, 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 the resentment, the disappointment comes in the gap between our expectations and what we perceive to be our reality. And that gap often is a sentence that starts with, I thought that. I thought that I'd be farther along by now. I thought that I'd be able to do more now. I thought that we'd be able to do these things in this phase of life. I thought that people would treat me differently. All of us have at least a handful of sentences that begin with, I thought. And they cause us a lot of disappointment and a lot of resentment. So what I want to encourage us to do today, when these pop up, is to look for God in those gaps. In the gap between your expectations and your reality, look for God. This isn't some Pollyannish, you know, it's all going to turn out okay, just look on the bright side. Things are really hard for many of us. But what would it look like just to, to watch for how God is at work in the gaps between our expectations and our reality? There's kind of two ways we, we come at this, and they might go together. The first thing is we probably need to examine our expectations. I, I wonder if God might be asking us to change our expectations sometimes. I think we have understandable expectations, but if we're honest, we know that they're not grounded in Scripture. See if you've ever had these expectations. You know, if I behave well and take care of myself... I won't have health problems. I get that. I have felt that. It's understandable. But we know that we are not promised that. If I'm ethical and follow all the rules, I will be more successful than those who aren't. Now, there's some Proverbs that speak to that, but we read Ecclesiastes too. We know it's not that simple. And we know that we're not promised those things. We feel that sometimes. I felt it. It's not wrong or bad to feel those things. But those aren't realistic expectations. And they are not promised to us anywhere in Scripture. So one of the things we might have to do when we're feeling disappointed and resentful is to examine our expectations to see if they are in fact realistic and if in fact they are grounded in Scripture. Because they might not be. The second thing, though, we might have to do is to rethink our reality. We might need to describe things differently. And it's not an either-or. It's not about saying, well, this is difficult, but I'll just say it's great. I don't believe that at all. It's a way to name the difficult reality, but also name a different perspective. So we might say, this health diagnosis is very difficult and hard, and I'm scared. That's true, and we ought to name that. We can also say, I am fully depending on God right now. Those are both true. We don't have to pick, but we might need to expand how we talk about reality. So you might have to find ways to talk about what you are experiencing, your disappointments, not to replace the difficult reality with some pie-in-the-sky thinking, but a different way to describe it. 
I have an opportunity to show the love of God to this person who is not treating me the way I think they should. There are ways to rethink our reality, to name it differently, so that we have a more holistic view of what we are experiencing. And so we don't set ourselves up for all this resentment and disappointment. I think both of those things go together. We might examine our expectations. We might have to rethink our reality. Both of those things are important as we face disappointments and resentments. There's a Christmas song that we sing. We'll probably sing here. I like this song. It was released in the early 90s, although the words were written even earlier in the 80s. It's a song that you know, Mary, Did You Know? And the songwriter, Mark Lowry, talked about his process for writing this song. He said, you know, I started thinking and wondering if Mary realized the power and authority and majesty she cradled in her arms that first Christmas. I wonder if she realized those little hands were the same hands that scooped out oceans and formed rivers. I just tried to put into words the unfathomable. I started thinking of questions I would have for her if I were to sit down and have coffee with her. What did you know? What didn't you know? Now, others have rightly given us a broader perspective on this song. Michael Frost, who's a theologian, said, it's the most sexist Christmas song ever written. It treats her like a clueless child. Can you imagine a song that asks Abraham 17 times if he knew he'd be the father of a great nation? And I get it's a, it's a fair critique of that song. Uh, in fact, a, a Toronto-based theologian named Jennifer Henry, back in 2017, rewrote the lyrics. She kept the, the melody, but rewrote the lyrics to reflect Mary's knowledge in the song that she sings. I don't know everything Mary knew. I don't know what her expectations were. If she was a normal human being, surely she had some expectations of what it would be like to become a mother that did not happen. Surely she felt some disappointment. I bet there was a gap between Mary's expectations and the reality of how she gave birth. But I do know that Mary was clear-eyed about reality. You can't read the song that she writes and sings and think that she didn't know what was going to happen. So here's Mary writing a song about how a baby born into a lowly feeding trough would turn the world upside down. And here's one of the most disappointing births ever recorded that led the way to the most earth-shattering blessing in history. Because God was in those gaps. God was in the gap between the stable and a comfortable room. And God was in the gap between manger and a respectable crib. And God is in the gap between your reality and your expectations. And so when you encounter a disappointing situation, I would just invite you to examine your expectations. I would invite you to rethink your reality. And I would invite you to watch for the amazing ways God will show up in the gaps between those two things. 
Let's be standing.